Good morning, everyone. Please find your way to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. We are walking through this incredible letter that God has given us. And as I say that, I realize that I call every letter God given us incredible. I like doing that. As you know, we walk through the text. We go line by line. We study verse by verse. And the reason we do that is, is, is we don't want to miss anything that God has to say to us. Amen? And by studying the Bible this way, we can, we, we can better understand the Word. And, and we can keep what God is teaching us in context so we can apply it to our lives. It's so important to do. You see, the main purpose of the church is to worship and glorify God. And we do that how? We do that by proclaiming his word. And when we proclaim his word, the church becomes equipped to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 through 18, an incredible passage, says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is properly working, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love it. That's the purpose of the church. The only way to equip the church is to proclaim the word. We can't do it by telling stories. The only way that to, mature, to mature in Christ is to know the word and to apply it to our lives. The only way to have spiritual growth is to stay in and study the word. Amen? The Puritan Philip Henry wrote this. Conversion turns us to the word of God as our touchstone to examine ourselves. As, as a glass to dress by, James 1. As our rule to walk and work by, Galatians 6. As our water to wash us, Psalm 119. As our fire to warm us, Luke 24. As our food to nourish us, Job 13. As our sword to fight with, Ephesians 6. As our counselor in all our doubts, Psalm 119. As our cordial to comfort us, as our heritage to enrich us. You see, the Bible is central to our spiritual lives. It is instrumental in our regeneration and crucial to our spiritual growth. We can't do any of this without it. That's why we go line by line, verse by verse. That's why we walk through the word. And let me just say this. It's a great joy in, you know, to grow in Christ with each and every one of you over the years. You know, as I'm studying and I'm writing and I'm praying. And, and man, I just see y'all's faces. You guys bring joy to my heart. And I appreciate every one of you very, very much. Now, as we have studied this letter, we have seen that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, he taught with authority, showing that he had authority over the scriptures. 
He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He has shown that he has the power and authority over the physical realm by healing many. He has shown that he has power and authority over nature by calming the sea and wind. He has shown that he has power and authority over the spiritual world by silencing and casting out unclean spirits. And last week, we saw that Jesus does indeed have the power and authority to forgive sins. He told the crippled man to take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven, wasn't what everybody expected him to say. But to prove to the doubters in the room that he did indeed have the power to forgive sins, he also healed the paralytic. He said, pick up your mat and go home, he told the man. And the man did that, instantly did that, instantly healed. So Jesus healed him physically and spiritually on that day. God is the only one that can forgive sins from the lips of the scribes themselves, right? If you remember, Jesus said, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders said, what? Only God can forgive sins. They were right. A true statement. Jesus is the only one that has the authority to forgive sins. So the right conclusion is, the conclusion they should have come to, is Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who came to seek and save the lost. He is the one who sets man free from the bondage of sin. He is the only one who is able to set man free from the penalty of sin. Last week I said, hey, this is the big one. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the message of Christianity, that man can be forgiven of sins. Man can be set free from the consequences of sin. Sinful man can have peace with the holy God. What an incredible message. And all of, it is, all of that is, is possible because of one man, because of one God-man, Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which man can be saved, says the scriptures. Amen? So Jesus healed the paralytic and proclaimed to the world that he is the one that is able to forgive sins. And after making that statement, he dropped his mic. No, but I could see that happening. But after making that statement, after healing the paralytic, Jesus leaves the house. You know, he walks out. And he leaves the ones who doubted him, doubted him, chewing on that huge piece of theology that he just proclaimed. I mean, that was, a, that was a truckload of theology that just got dumped on those guys. And you would think that they would probably stay there and chew on that for a while. You know, maybe they would converse among themselves. Uh, again, did you hear what he said? Are you sure? Did you see what? You know, they should be doing that. But you know what? That, that didn't satisfy them. That's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for the one who is able to forgive sins. They're looking for a way to, to get rid of the one that is able to forgive sins. So they accused him of what? Blasphemy. Why, that's blasphemy. They accused him of claiming to have the uncommunicable attributes of God that only God can have. They despised him. Yet they still followed him around to see what he would do next, to see what he would say next. And so they followed Jesus as he was going out of town. Chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Notice that in scriptures. Jesus is always teaching. 
He, if he's healing, he's teaching. If he's speaking, he's teaching. He's always teaching. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot more to the to here than just Jesus calling someone to follow him. But I want you to think about as we walk through these, these verses, I want you to think uh, about verse 13, because that's the key to this section here. This will help us better understand why Jesus did what he did and why he called who he called. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but what? But sinners. That, that's the key. God came to call sinners unto himself. You, you, you must first understand that you're a sinner before you can understand the calling. You, you must know that you're not perfect. You must know that you, you are not righteous. You must know that you are a sinner before you can know that you are in need of a Savior. And Levi, or Matthew, understood that as he was in need of a Savior. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that he had sinned against God. He was desiring a Savior. In his heart, he wanted to get right with God. Deep in his heart, he didn't like where he was in life. The God-given knowledge of there is a right and there is a wrong had been working in the heart of Matthew. He knew in his heart that his life was not right. So let's look at Matthew. He went out beside the sea, verse 13, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, Matthew's sitting at the tax booth. Doesn't seem like much info here, but there is a lot. First, we have to look at the structure of how taxes were collected in Rome to better understand who Matthew is. Tax collectors were men who served occupying Rome against their own people by collecting taxes for Rome. So a Jewish tax collector was seen as a sellout by the Jewish people, all right? Because a, a, a tax collector's first loyalty was to Rome and money. They chose the two over the Jewish nation. Now, the way in which you become a tax collector is that you would buy a franchise from Rome that entitled you to levy certain taxes on the populace and on travelers. So you would buy a certain, certain section of town. You would own that franchise. Now, a franchise required collecting a specific amount of taxes for Rome. So Rome would say, okay, you, you got this part right here. You're going to give us, you know, $100,000. You're going to bring us $100,000 from that section. And... and, and and that's how much you would have to give the Roman government. Now, the bonus for the tax collectors was this. Rome also allowed any money collected beyond what the tax collectors were, were collecting uh, 
that they get to keep that as personal profit. Okay? So what they collected beyond what was required, they put in their pocket. Now the tax man could set the tax at any level, and there was nothing that anyone could do about it because the tax collectors was backed by the Roman military. That's strong. So basically, the owner of a tax franchise had a license for extortion. Not a good way to make friends in the community. The Jews actually hated the Jewish tax man more than they hated the occupying Roman government. And for good reason. These guys were some of the most dishonest people out there. They would accept bribes from the wealthy to reduce their taxes. And then they would put heavier taxes on the middle lower class to make up for the lost money. These men were as dishonest as they come. And these men would amass great fortunes and live lavishly at the expense of their own countrymen right in their faces. Everybody could see what was going on. If you think the IRS is not like today, it was worse back then. Now, another reason the tax man was hated is because the Jews believed that the only proper government over them was a theocracy. And I don't know if you remember Pastor Vince taught on that back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's God ruling over them through his appointed leaders. And since they considered any foreign rule over them to be illicit, they considered taxation by any such government both unjust and unholy. So, so the whole system was so repulsive to the Jewish nation that they hated anyone and everyone who was involved in it. The whole system. Bottom line, no love for a tax collector. Now, let's move and let's drill down a little bit further. Let's look at the offices of tax collectors and we'll see how Matthew fits into this picture. Two categories of publicans, one or two types of tax collectors. The first one whom the Jews called goodbye. They were goodbye. They were they were general tax collectors. They would they would they would collect taxes on the land or any other property and income tax. They were called the goodbye. And everyone here will remember this text when you fill out your taxes, because when you give your money to the government, you will say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye to your money. It's gone. You remember, you will. The second type of tax collector was called a mocus. He collected a wide variety of taxes. Now these taxes are similar to our import duties, our toll roads, our, our boating, docking fees, fishing license, business license, and stuff like that. Now the mocus had the most unlimited latitude in their taxing powers and could attach a tax to virtually any article or activity that happened. They could, they could put a levy on, uh, levy on uh, a tax on someone's boat, or they could tax the fish that he caught. They, they could charge a tax to uh, you know, dock his boat. They, they would tax a traveler coming through by how many wheels he had on his cart, or how many donkeys was pulling it. You know, they had a lot of authority when it came to this position. They could come into a private business or home, and they could look at private paperwork to see if a taxable business was going on somewhere that they did not know about. These guys had free reign on what they could tax. Now, drilling down even further, there's two kinds of mocuses. One kind called the great mocus, he stayed behind the scenes and he hired other men to collect the taxes for them. 
this is a kind of a protection, you know. He's back here. The people don't hate him as bad as they hate this other guy. The other guy is called a small mocus. And they did their own assessing and collecting and therefore were in constant contact with members of the community as well as all the travelers who passed by. So that's our structure of the Roman IRS. The goodbye, they were despised. The great mocus was hated, but the small mocus was despised and hated most of all. They were hated by all. Guess which one Matthew was? He was that small mocus. Remember, he's sitting at the, in the tax booth as Jesus passed through the outskirts of Capernaum. It was Matthew who was sitting there and inspecting every cart that went by, collected money on every fish that was caught. He decided how much the fruit grower had to pay to use his road. Matthew was the most despised of the despicable men on the street. Matthew was such a lowlife that he was barred from the synagogue and was forbidden to have any religious or social contact with his fellow Jews. He was ranked with the unclean animals, which meant that a devout Jew would not so much as touch him. He was in the same class as a pig. You know, sometimes when people read the scriptures and they, you know, Jesus and the twelve, they get this picture of, you know, Jesus, the Holy One, and these, you know, this, these twelve perfect disciples following behind them. That, that's not the way it is. These are twelve ordinary men, just like me, you and I. Matthew was seen as a traitor and a liar. He was ranked with robbers and murderers and was forbidden to even give testimony in a Jewish court. This little mocus was such a disgusting person that the Jews believed that it was impossible for him to be saved. They believed that God himself would not save a mocus. And then along comes Jesus. And he says to this little mocus, Follow me. Matthew knew who Jesus was. He's the tax collector in the region. He sat at the crossroad every day. He knew everything that happened in this area. He had heard of Jesus' healing. He had heard of Jesus' teaching. Everyone was talking about Jesus. So Matthew knew who Jesus was. And I'm sure he already heard that Jesus had forgiven the sins of the paralyzed man. You know, news like that spreads very fast. This is a news that Matthew longed to hear. He, he wanted that forgiveness, something he could not get from anyone on this earth. Society had rejected him. The religious leaders had rejected him. He couldn't even go to the temple to offer a sacrifice to God if he wanted to. It seems as if Matthew had been yearning for the forgiveness that the perverted system of Judaism told him he could not have. You cannot attain it. He had no hope. He saw no way out. He did not know how to deal with the sins that he had committed. He didn't know where to turn. He had no clue. But when Jesus walked by and said, follow me, those words put a living hope in the heart of Matthew. Those words put life in a dead soul. Those words were the words that Matthew had been longing to hear. We see in the book of Matthew that Matthew himself simply says, I rose up and followed him. Immediately, Luke tells us that the moment Jesus called Matthew, he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. Think about this for a moment. 
When Matthew got up and walked away from that booth, not only was he walking away from his job, he walked away from the only life he had known, and he knew there was no going back. There was no going back. He wasn't like the fishermen who could you know, go back and start fishing again. They could do that immediately. Matthew couldn't go back to his booth. I, I bet the, the, Mocus, the, the great Mocus already had somebody in that position before sunset. Matthew couldn't go back to his booth. There was no going back. Matthew left everything, and, and he, he could never go back. You know, something else to point out here. Matthew didn't say, you know, hey, uh, let me get my life right first, as many have said before. That ain't how it works. When Jesus calls, you go. Matthew didn't care. You know, he didn't care about that stuff. All that stuff was dung compared to the love of Jesus. All that stuff in position of authority no longer had its hold on Matthew. He weighed the cost, and he says, I'm following Jesus. I'm leaving this stuff behind. Matthew felt like Matt, uh, Paul did when he said, whatever the things were to gain to me, man, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Matthew says, I now have found the riches of the world. The Savior of the world said to me, follow me. Those were the most beautiful words a soul that was heavy laden could ever hear. Matthew didn't say a word. He didn't say, hold on, Jesus, let me get my money bags. Hold on, Jesus, let me collect one more tax and I'll go with you. Hold on, let me get somebody to take my position so I can come back if this quote following thing doesn't work out with you. He got up and followed Jesus. That's a sign of true conversion right there. When one truly understands who Jesus is, when one understands the calling that he heard, he cannot leave his old life fast enough. His old habits, his old standards and practices no longer appeal to him, and, he's gladly, and he gladly leaves it all behind. That's what Matthew did. He walked away. He said, yes, I will follow you. Now, right after that, what's the first thing that Matthew did? He did what every truly forgiven sinner does. He went and told all his friends and family. You know? As a matter of fact, Matthew did what all Christians should do right after they get saved. Matthew throws a party and invites all his friends. He makes a big deal about this. This is a big deal to him. You know, I think as believers, you know, we need to make a bigger deal about salvation. You know, when someone gets saved, you know, we're like, oh, praise the Lord. Amen. You know, that's awesome. Congratulations. And we go on. That's good. I think we need to, we need to make a party when somebody gets saved. I, I'm thinking that it should be on the 6 o'clock news. Instead of reporting the car wreck, you know, hey, hey, Joe, back down to you. Chris Fields just got saved. You know, it needs to be proclaimed. <laughs> That should be the lead story, right? We're, we're talking about eternal salvation here. We're talking about a soul saved from eternal damnation. We're talking about a right relationship with our holy God. Man, that's a big deal. We need to make a big deal about it. That, that is what life is all about. None of that other stuff matters. 
We are to glorify God, and a great way to do it is to celebrate salvation. Celebrate a soul being saved from eternal damnation. And that's what Matthew did. He said, I'm throwing a party. He celebrated. Headline speaker, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't get any better than that. That's right. The guest of honor, no other than the Son of God. What a party. Oh, what a party that is. You see, Matthew knew the predicament he was in before he was called by Jesus. He understood that. Matthew also knew that his friends were in the same place he was before he met Jesus. And that's why he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. He wanted them to hear what Jesus had said to him. He wanted them to get saved just like he was. The thought of the of eternal fire that was on Matthew's mind has now been changed into a heart that is on fire for God. Do you remember that fire? Do you remember that fire you had in your heart when you first realized what Jesus had done for you? Do you remember how you wanted to tell everyone who Jesus is, especially your family? I do. I remember that fire. Uncle Dave sitting here today because of that fire that God put in my heart. Don't ever grow weary of sharing the gospel. Don't let that fire go out. Don't, don't put out the light that God has put in your heart. Keep that fire going. Keep stoking that fire. Never, ever forget the day that salvation came to you. Never. We need to live in that moment. That, that's where true joy is. You know, the things of this world, it's going to drag you down. You know, we, we as believers need to stay on that mountaintop by remembering and never forgetting that we are eternally in the hands of God, our Savior. And we need to proclaim it all the time, all the time. Amen? We're to ne you know, another point, never give up on God. Do not discount the saving power of God. B because if he could save me and Chris and Kenny and the rest of you guys in here, he could save anyone and everyone, right? Everyone said amen? In our text today, Jesus has just called one of the most hated men on the planet to follow him. He brings salvation to a soul that the world believed could not be saved. That, that's why we do not believe what the world says and thinks. We believe what God says. We live in that truth. Never, ever give up on the saving power of God. Never, ever say, he's too far gone. Nobody ever is. Nobody ever is. Matthew gets saved, throws a party, invites all his friends, and Jesus is a headline speaker. Now I want you to think about this. Who do you think Matthew's friends are? The religious leaders? No. People of the community? <laughs> I doubt that very seriously. Very seriously. No. Remember, everyone despises Matthew. So Matthew's friends are all the other lowlifes of society. That's who he hangs with. 
Matthew was rejected by, by society. Matthew was rejected by the Jewish people. Matthew was rejected by the religious leaders. So it goes without saying, Matthew's friends were a bunch of rejects. And Jesus came in and sat down and ate with all these rejects. He talked to all these people who had been rejected by everyone else. And I bet, I bet he even put his hands on the most hated people in town. Now, if you think the self-righteous Jewish leaders despised Jesus before, their hatred has grown even more. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, listen, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? First of all, did you notice that they put tax collectors in a category by themselves? <laughs> Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, you know. You have sinners at this level, and then your tax collector, he's down here. That's how much they were hated. That's how much they were hated. And, and that's why the scribes of the Pharisees said, oh, No, what is he doing? Not only is Jesus eating with sinners, but he's eating with tax collectors. He's crossed the line there, folks. They're thinking, if Jesus is the Son of God, like he said, then he definitely would not come and hang out with sinners and tax collectors. God would hang out with the righteous ones like us. He would be dining with the religious leaders, would he not? He would be with all the self-righteous ones of the world. God would not entertain the thought of reaching out to the sinners of this world. Just as we're above that, the scribe said, God would be above that. The leaders thought they were above these small, despicable people, so they figured God would be the same way they are. How dare this man who teaches with authority, this man who has people following him, this man who heals people, this man who forgives sins, this man who claims to be God, how dare him recline and eat and teach tax collectors and sinners? How dare him? But listen. Because of the self-righteous lens that the scribes all looked through, they would never understand that. that they, would have, they would never understand this, that if Jesus were to eat with the religious leaders, he'd still be eating with sinners. They can't see that, though. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, when he heard it, said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the central truth of these verses here. It is among the most important statement ever recorded in the Bible. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the reason for the incarnation. Jesus came into the world to call sinners unto himself. He came to heal those who have a terminal spiritual illness like Matthew had. Matthew 
knew there was no human cure for his sickness. But the good news is that he met the doctor with the cure. He met Jesus. He met the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. I am the one who has authority to forgive sins. No other way to get to heaven. No other way to get to the Father but through me. Come and follow me. I'll heal that broken soul, Jesus says. Matthew heard that calling, and Matthew followed Jesus. But the self-righteous men, the, self the, the groups following them, they heard the same calling. They can't hear that. As the northern Italian guys, I can't hear that. They say that all the time. I can't hear that. They can't hear that. They can't hear that those who are well have no need of a physician. The, the gospel is not for the so-called good people. Just ask them. They don't need forgiveness. The gospel is for sinners who, who know they're sick. They come to God. They come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. They know they need it. Matthew was looked upon as the vilest, most wretched, and worthless of all people. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, called him the problem with the Pharisees the problem with the scribes and Pharisees here the ones who were too scared to ask Jesus why he ate with sinners did you catch that I found that funny they said they asked the disciples hey what why is Jesus eating with the tax collector of sinners they, they didn't even want to ask Jesus but the problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that they didn't want to follow Jesus. They had heard the message that Jesus proclaimed many times. Jesus continued to proclaim the message of salvation. Instead, instead of following Jesus, they chose to follow the rituals of Judaism. And they did it with great precision. They were very good at following the rituals. Their exterior works looks great on the outside. But they looked like, they, they look, they, you know, if you saw them today, you'd go, man, man, that, that family's really got together. Boy, they love Jesus. Look at what they're doing. They, they, they look like people who love God, but in their hearts, the scribes, their heart was cold. It was hard and merciless. In, the, in Matthew's account of this event, the word states, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus says this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the right, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The religious leaders back then were like a doctor who could only diagnose others with the sickness of sin, but not willing to give them the cure. They could call out the sin and point out the sickness, but they wasn't willing to give the cure. It was like they, they had a cure, but didn't want to get too close to that one that was sick because they were afraid of catching something. Or, or, or they, you know, we're too righteous to associate with anyone who's sick like that. They had no mercy. No mercy in their soul. So Jesus sends them off. He said, hey, go learn. Go learn what I desire mercy and not sacrifice means. Why? You know, they, they should have already known that. 
They're, they're scholars of the scriptures. And this was a quote from Hosea 6. You see, God had instituted the sacrificial system, but he did not want the rituals, the outward works, to become a substitute for inward righteousness. It has never been about the act. Never has been. It's always been about the motives and the heart. The religious leaders observed the letter of the law to a T, but had no compassion for the ones who needed spiritual help. They associated only with self-righteous people like themselves, and they would never sit down and eat with a sinner and share the gospel with the ones who desperately needed it. Remember, Israel was to be a light unto the world. Israel was to let the world know that the God of Israel was the one true living God who promised salvation. They were to share this knowledge with the world. They failed. They became proud. They became self-righteous. They became ritualistic. They became so engulfed with the sacrificial system that they could not see the needs of others. We could never let that happen to us. They looked down on people. They looked down on them instead of lifting them up and telling them about God. Totally opposite of what Christ did on that day. In this text, Jesus demonstrated what we were supposed to be doing. The Son of God sees Matthew, one who was looked upon as the vilest and most wretched and worthless of people. Jesus calls him out, follow me, goes to his house, proclaims the message that he, that he came to proclaim. He proclaimed that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, believe in the good news. Know this, know this as we go through this text. The gospel is for all who will believe, all. Salvation is for all who will believe. All means all, I looked it up. All means all. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for the poor. It's for those who will believe. God says all have fallen short of the glory of God, of glory of God. It, it, it means that all have sinned. And that's why the message of salvation is not for the ones who are self-righteous. It's not for the ones who believe they're good people. Like I said earlier, the ones who think they are good and are, and, and are forgiven of their sins because of the works they've done, they see no need in forgiveness. The gospel is for the ones who do a self-examination of their own heart and realize they're not holy. They're not perfect. They realize that they have indeed sinned against the holy God and are in need of salvation. The gospel is for all the people who realize they are spiritually sick in need of a Savior, just like Matthew did. So we have to do a self-examination, and let's do that by turning to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. 